something that I typically don't ask you to do. I always ask you to read the text before us within its context. So all the students of our youth group should be able to say, in response to when I say context is, context is, there. thank you those two that said that out loud. <laughs> context is king. If you want to know what a passage means, you must understand what comes before it and what comes after it. Because if you just take a verse all by itself, really we can piece together anything we want Scripture to say, to say. If you want to know what has come before this, all my sermons are posted on our website, and I encourage you to go there now so I don't have to rehearse 18 chapters of John's Gospel. If you want to know what comes after, please read ahead this week. Don't do it now, but please read ahead. Because the next few weeks are going to be hard, as I said during the announcements. We're getting to walk through, we're beginning to walk through the trial, the murder, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's going to be hard. Because John isn't quiet of why Jesus was put on trial and why Jesus was brutally murdered. But what I am going to ask of you this morning is to suspend trying to piece together what John presents before us to, with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke also say. Typically, and this is very, I want you to do this at some point. Take what John represents here in chapters 18 19, and 20, and compare it with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. But I don't want you to do that this morning, because of a lot of what John offers, and as we've seen in the last five chapters, chapters 13 through 17 aren't found in any other gospel. That's very unique to John's gospel. But sometimes what we do is we run the risk when we're trying to compare this passage to that passage. Well, what did Luke say? What did Mark say? What did Matthew say compared to what John says? Sometimes what we do is we lose what is John trying to present for us? What is this portrait of Jesus that John wants us to see? Because what we're going to find out is John leaves out a lot compared to the other Gospels. And here's why. Because John wants us to see this Jesus that he's been presenting from the very first chapter of this gospel. A Jesus that is in complete control of everything that happens to him. Yes, John could have, because we believe John wrote his gospel last, after the other three had been written. We do believe that John actually used Mark to help guide him in the narrative, John could have done just a summary of the other three Gospels, but John didn't. Because he wants to tell us his eyewitness account of this Jesus. 
And what I want us to see this morning is that John presents actually two concurrent stories that no other gospel does. The denial of Peter and the denial of the chief priest. And he runs them like an action cam, going back and forth between the two scenes. And I want us to see that. I want us to feel and experience this tension. I'm hesitant to ask the students if they will help me with this after the first one. But we should understand the students like we've been going through Mark. Mark typically makes what we call a Mark sandwich. He tells us about something. And then he tells us another story, which seems as though it has nothing to do with the first story. And then he finishes his first story. And what Mark wants us to see is that all of these things are telling us the same truth. And if we take these stories apart, we miss what the author is trying to show us. This morning, as John cuts back and forth between these two stories, the story of Peter and the story of Anas. And what I want us to see this morning is this picture that Jesus, in this early morning, that everybody denies Jesus. And I want us to think about what we saw last week. Jesus gave himself up for his disciples, as the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. I want us to see what I believe John wants us to see, is that all of us are a lot more like Peter and an ass than we're willing to say. Because both of these men See Jesus, and both of these men deny Jesus. And I want us to have this tension between these stories. And I want us to see John's solution to these stories. Because when, only when we see the solution will we be able to apply that to our own stories. Because if we know our own hearts, what I, want to, what I want us to see, what John wants us to see, is that sooner or later we're going to deny and fail Jesus. Before we do that, let us begin in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We need your help this morning. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our eyes and cause us to see our own sin. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts Remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Draw us to the cross. Heal us as your people. 
May we not be left in our sorrow and our shame. But may we receive the hope of the gospel. Father, we pray for Miss Cynthia and her appointment this week. Lord, we ask that you bless her. Father, we pray for Robert Gardner's mother, that you might heal her. We pray for Joan Raspberry. We pray for Jonathan Pence. Lord, please heal them. May it be by supernatural power, or may it be through the means of medicine and doctors and nurses. Father, we ask for you to heal. Father, we pray for our church. We pray that you bring us a youth director who will love our children and our students, who will love them as Christ has loved them. Someone who can teach the scriptures, apply the scriptures to the lives of our students, so they might see your amazing grace in Jesus. We pray for our fall groups, for the women's and men's Bible studies, for our small groups, for our catechism club. Lord, may this not be just a social event for us, but may you be at the center of everything that we do. Father, we pray for your peace, that your great shalom might cover the city of Memphis. Lord, the chaos reveals our depravity and our sin. May the church stand. May the church be a place of safe haven, of Sabbath rest. Father, we pray for our sister church, River Oaks Reformed Presbyterian Church in Germantown, and their ministers, Tommy Lee and Rob Callison and Kyle Dillon and Drew Tuberville. Lord, may they never waver from the teaching of your truth. May they encourage the people of Germantown of who Jesus is. May they be a light to that city. Father, we pray for Austin Brash, the RUF minister at Old Miss. As they've begun their semester, Lord, give him wisdom on how to love these students. This is his first semester. Lord, bless the work of his hands. Father, we pray for our president, for our vice president, Kamala Harris, for our Supreme Court justices, for our senators and representatives. Lord, may they lead justly as you are a God of justice. 
May they give voices to those who have none. May they stand for the widow and for the orphan, for the marginalized. Give them wisdom that only comes from your truth, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for Mark and Liz Scheibe, our missionaries in Northern Ireland. Bless their marriage, bless their children, and bless their work. May they know this morning that they are not alone in pushing back the kingdom of darkness, but that the kingdom of God has come, and our king is returning soon. And Father, we pray as you have taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. John 18, verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John here is connecting the story for us. If you don't remember the story, back in John chapter 11, we met Caiaphas. We, we met Caiaphas because he was at the head of the scheme because the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They wanted to kill Jesus because he had just displayed resurrection power, and they wanted to kill Lazarus, all the evidence. And if you will, actually turn with me to John 11, verse 49. It's just three pages back on page 898. John 11, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, speaking to the Pharisees in the council of the Sanhedrin. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And this is John's commentary. He did not say this on his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day... On, they made plans to put him to death. What we might miss is that between John chapter 11 and John chapter 18, by the way, I preached on this passage in March. There wasn't that much time that happened between John chapter 11 and John chapter 18. We think that maybe they were separated by a week. And John is drawing us back to this plot to kill Jesus, reminding the readers of this tragic irony. 
that what the Jews were actually doing was unfolding God the Father's plan of salvation for his people. So, you might think, this high priest, who is he? Right? Because John chapter 11, it tells us that Caiaphas is the high priest. And now in John chapter 18, it's telling us that Anas is the high priest. Which one is it? Well, D.A. Carson helps us understand the reality of the situation. That Anas held the office of high priest from AD 6 until AD 15, when Valerius Gratius, Pilate's predecessor, deposed him. Anas continued to hold enormous influence, not only because many of the Jews re- reasserted the, or resented the arbitrary disposition of the appointed high priest, which was a lifelong priestlyhood, but also Anas's, five of Anas's sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas held this office at one time or another. Anas was thus the patriarch of this high priestly family and probably considered to be where the power really was. James Hamilton points out that calling an ass high priest is probably analogous to how we call our ex-presidents president. They don't lose that title even though they lose that office. But what John wants us to see is that the first people they take Jesus to see is Anas because he's the one that holds the power. But little does he know, God's sovereign power is at work. That through this evil and unjust trial, because there's nothing here that actually looks like a trial. According to Jewish law, the one that's being, what's the word? The victim cannot give testimony about himself. The only testimony can be of other eyewitnesses, and we don't see that here. According to Jewish law, these trials were also supposed to be in the middle of the day so that they can gather eyewitnesses, and we know here that it is early in the morning. So everything about this trial might look like it's a normal trial, but this isn't. This is a mockery. Little does he know that God is in control. And then this is what we read back in chapter 18. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. Who is this other disciple? Well, I believe John is actually writing of himself. That This is actually the author of John's gospel, John. We see earlier in this text, earlier in this book, that John does not identify himself, but he is the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the disciple that asked Jesus when all the other disciples were afraid to ask where he was going. And so here we see 
Peter and John, two, the only two disciples who have followed Jesus thus far after he's arrested. And John enters into this courtroom, but Peter had to stay outside. And what's so important, and I don't want us, I don't want us to focus on John's success. But I, what I also don't want us to see is see this as Peter's success. Many commentators and pastors have said, well, at least Peter was there. At least Peter was one of the two that followed Jesus after his arrest. But this text isn't revealing to us what Peter did right. Unfortunately, this text is all about what Peter did wrong. This text is about how Peter failed Jesus. Because what we see is that Peter was given the chance to follow Jesus. Because this is what we see in the next verse or in the next sentence. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and basically said, Bring Peter in. John provided a way for Peter to be, enter the courtyard to be closer to Jesus. And this is what happened. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter responds, I am not. And this is where we see this contrast between Jesus and between Peter. This servant girl asks Peter a question that will allow him to only answer in one way, And if he was to answer into another way, his only answer would have been, I am. But here's the irony. Peter responds with, I am not. This is Peter, one of the four disciples that are closest to Jesus. This is Peter who confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus told him, it is upon this confession that he will build his church. This Peter is the one who denied that Jesus would wash his feet because he thought it was too lowly for Jesus to do. It was this Peter who saw Jesus transfigured upon the mountain. It was this Peter who said that he would lay down his life for Jesus. And he almost did when he pulled out his dagger and cut off the ear of the priest's servants. It's this Peter that was given this opportunity to follow Jesus. And he failed. And we see that Peter is no longer in the presence of Jesus. And then John cuts us directly back to the trial. We see um, in verse 19... And the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Isn't that great? John reveals what Anas's main objective actually is. He's asking Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Anas is only concerned with power. How many followers do you have and what have you been telling them? He's asking Jesus, do you have enough power 
to start a revolution. Because this is what has happened in the Jewish history. This is the Maccabean revolt that happened in 167 to 160 BC. BC. Anas is wondering if Jesus is getting ready to overthrow the Romans. What are you telling your people, and how many of them do you have? But look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus isn't lying. He isn't saying that he has never taught in secret. He's only saying that everything that I've ever taught in secret, I've also said plainly and openly for all to hear. And that's why he says in the next verse, Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I have said. They know what I have said. And then this is where the scene gets real. In verse 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? This is where we should see the irony oozing through the pages. The officer slaps Jesus because Jesus has somehow offended the high priest. The high priest, an anointed office given by God to be God's representative to his people. The high priest's office was an office given to mediate his presence to the people of God in their worship so that they might enter into his presence offering a sacrifice and worship him. If there's anyone in the world that should have recognized who Jesus was, it should have been the high priest. Think about it. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and God is standing right in front of him, and he's too blind to see him. And this is what John wants us to see. Jesus has come to his own, and his own do not recognize him. Everything about that sacred office was received by God's grace. Everyone who held that office knows that at some point they will stand on trial before a holy God and give an answer for what they have done. And yet God himself is standing and is mocked. And it is this man in this office that finds Jesus in contempt. He has everything at his disposal to see Jesus for who he really is. And he fails Jesus. And we might ask of ourselves, how do we do the same thing? 
We have everything in our lives. Everything that God has given us by his grace that we might see Jesus. And yet so often we fail Jesus. We replace the gifts of God for God himself. Whether it be our children, whether it be our work or our trips or these elaborate plans that we make, whether it be our sports, children, whether we think that our gifts that we receive are actually better than Jesus, our toys, adults, whether we see our toys as better than Jesus. What John is revealing is that the people of God failed Jesus when they take more delight in his gifts than they do the gift giver. Because when they enjoy the gifts more than the gift giver, they deny Jesus. And this is what Jesus says in verse 23. If what I say is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what I said is right. Why do you strike me? Jesus condemned the actions of the high priest, of this pharisaical group. And when Jesus asked them to give an answer, instead of answering him, they send him away. Because they don't want to hear from Jesus. And then John returns back to Peter in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who, whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why does Peter deny Jesus? Is he seeking some type of physical safety? Is he trying to prevent being incarcerated? We aren't told. But what this text clearly reveals is that the one closely associated with Jesus, one of the two that are so closely related to Jesus, fail him again. And here's the hard part. Because what might be easy for a lot, of us in this, a lot of us in this room is to say, how could Peter do that? Shame on him. But the reality is that if we look at our own hearts, we know how easy it is to deny Jesus. Because what John's gospel has... Over and over presented about Peter is sometimes Peter does the right thing. But Peter doesn't always do the right thing. 
it's just it's interesting. The only person in this passage that did what he was supposed to do is Jesus. Jesus spoke of who he truly was and what he had truly come to do. And as, 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 and as interesting as it is, and as much as we can talk about Peter, and as much as we can talk about Anas, this passage is not about them. This passage is all about Jesus. And yet this passage isn't do what Jesus did. It's not a you-need-to-be-like-Jesus passage. This is a contrast. This passage is about you need Jesus because you will fail Jesus. At some point in our lives, we will find ourselves, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we read our Bible, no no matter how much we come to church, we will find ourselves in the same type of situation that Peter found himself. We will fail Jesus. But what this text is revealing is that even though Peter failed, Jesus did not fail. He stayed true to who he was. And he did what we cannot. He went to the cross because of our failures. This is why we look to him by faith. Because it is then and only then that we can ask the Holy Spirit whom is the helper of Jesus himself, and say, help us, or we will fail. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Help us in our time of need. Protect us from the evil one. And what this text is telling us, what it's revealing, what the portrait it's trying to paint of Jesus is that when we fail, we should know where to go. Whether it's a moral or physical or ethical failure, when we fail, we should run to the cross of Christ. And that's what Peter remembered. I didn't finish the last verse. Verse 27, it says, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. At once a rooster crowed, fulfilling what Jesus said that he would do. He would deny Jesus three times, and yet it is at the rooster crow where we find God's amazing grace. Because Peter has no hope in himself. His only hope is Jesus. For Jesus promised that he would never lose one of his own. And it's at this place, this charcoal fire, 
This is the only place in the entire Bible this word is used other than again in John chapter 21. And it's at this charcoal fire that Jesus calls Peter to himself and restores him as the resurrected Savior of sinners. And this is what Jesus does for us. He comes to us where we have failed. And he restores us. This is where we receive the fullness of his grace upon grace. In our failures is where Jesus has come. To redeem us of our sin. In this passage, Anas seals his own condemnation for seeking to find a way of salvation in any other way than through Jesus. And these are the two stories but yet there's two different outcomes. One is saved by God's amazing grace. The other stands in condemnation because even when his grace was offered, he continued to deny Jesus. He had used what God had given to draw people to himself for his own personal Gain. This isn't just some generic non-believer. This is someone who is a part of the community of God that receives all the blessings of God and yet uses the things of God for his own salvation other than the one who provides it. And it is to him that Jesus will say, I never knew you. It is to him that when we read in 2 Timothy 2, if we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we run to Jesus, he is the faithful one. May this, this story remind us of our story. And may we respond as Peter responded, by running to Jesus, that we might be saved by his amazing grace, because he is faithful. He is the truth. He is the way and the life. I'm going to close with this. It's interesting. There's no indication of anywhere in the Bible that, G that Peter tried to suppress this story. Think about it. All four Gospels in the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all retell the failure of Peter. He denied his Savior three times. But this is the greatness about the gospel, is that we as the community of God are able to talk about our great failures and we're able to be restored. Because our story isn't about 
how good we are. Our story is about how good Jesus is. And this is the Jesus that we come to at the table and receive grace upon grace. Let's pray.